Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Two TDs have a bag of manure thrown at them each at a public meeting. Is there a risk that access to politicians could be shut down? The overcrowding crisis in our hospitals continues. The HSE says the entire system is responding to try and ease the pressure. We accept, uh, which is, it's, it's not good enough, it's not what we want, it's not what the staff try every day to make sure it doesn't happen. And um, what we ask the patients to do is to accept often our apologies, and that's, you know, and we seek to make the patients as comfortable as possible. Prince Harry holds nothing back as excerpts of his new book talk about cocaine use, an alleged assault by his brother William, and how many people he says he killed while in Afghanistan. Where does that leave him with the royal family? If you're invited to the coronation, will you come? There's a lot that can happen between now and then, but you know, the door is always open, the, the ball is in their court. There's a lot to be discussed, and I really hope that they are willing to sit down and talk about it. And later, we will get the latest on Pope Benedict's funeral, chaos in US politics, and whether you should just skip New Year's resolutions this year. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. tonight with an attack on two TDs which has caused widespread condemnation and questions over the public's access to politicians. Minister Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon were at a public meeting in Gort when they had a bag of manure thrown at them. They spoke to Galway Bay FM about the incident a little earlier. I just felt very let down, okay, and I think we hit a new low that it was carry on regardless uh, uh, without uh, keeping it respectful absolutely. We can't allow public representatives, um, no matter who they are, for uh, anybody in civil society attending a meeting, to actually be treated like that. Just as a, a, a symbolic of a kind of a, a creeping uh, um, antagonism and, dare I say the word, hatred towards people who put them put their heads above the parapet and uh, get involved in politics, either at local or national level. Well, for more on this and other stories in the news today, I'm joined by Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher, Senator Marie Sherlock from the Labour Party, Marion McKeown, US correspondent with the Business Post, and Louise Byrne, political correspondent at the Irish Mirror. You're all very welcome to the programme. Louise, I'm going to start with you because we've got a little bit more detail today about what happened last night at this public meeting. Yeah, so uh, Minister Rabbit and Deputy Cannon, they were at this meeting and they were up, up discussing a biogas plant in Gort and concerns that the locals had. And during the course of this meeting, um, it was suggested that the government had done little to intervene in this. And it was pointed out that it's actually beyond the government now and that it's an onboard Planola decision. Um, during the course of the meeting then, um, first of all, the bag of manure was thrown at Deputy Cannon. 
And then later on, it was shown at Minister Rabbit. Um, and I think you heard there, Minister Rabbit on Galway Bay FM earlier. And she said she was really shocked and she was really afraid at that meeting. Mm, and I don't want to over-egg this. And I know I listened to Deputy Cannon on the radio later today. And he, you know, said, look, nobody was hurt in this incident. We're not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. But you could hear that uh, Minister Rabbit was quite upset by what had happened. Yeah, and even last night, um, shortly after the incident, I was told that she was fairly taken aback and that she was fairly shocked about the whole thing. And you could you could hear it. She was quite emotional, I thought, when she was on the radio earlier. And it, I mean, it's I think Kieran Cannon did put it perfectly. No one was hurt, but I think incidents like that, I think they do concern people because I think you know. And the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, he said this to the Irish Mirror earlier. In this country, we have really open access to politicians, and really, it's quite unusual. And I think you know, when you think about the open access that people have to politicians, and something like this happens, you do kind of get worried about safety, and it's only a natural thing to think of. I think. Are we seeing an increased frequency in these sort of random attacks on our politicians? Yeah, and I mean, I think you saw recently um, Jennifer Carl McNeil, she was up in court and um, she had a case of a man who was harassing her online. I think oftentimes you don't really hear about these things happening to politicians because I think there is a reluctance to speak out about them. And if you speak to any TD senator privately, they will speak about the amount of abuse that they get online through the post, all these kind of things, and very reluctant to speak out about it for want, they, they don't want to be accused of whinging. Mm. Um, Billy Kelleher, uh, Deputy Cannon there, the phrase he used was this creeping, sinister aggression, is what he called it, towards politicians. He says there's been a real change in the public's attitude. Are you experiencing that? Would you agree? And what are you putting it down to? Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's been happening uh, incrementally over a long period of time. Uh, social media has certainly whipped up uh, the frenzy to a certain extent. Uh, but, you know, I am concerned because... Um, a lot of politicians now are, you know, expressing concern about their basic freedom to go about their daily duties as a public representative, to attend meetings, knowing that you can stand up, speak up, advocate for your own beliefs or what your, those of your constituents without fear of being attacked. Um, look, we've had cases of physical abuse and violence towards politicians. Uh, I was assaulted twice uh, in my political life. I was being spat at. It was during the time of the financial crisis, during uh, 2007 to 2010. It, it was really a rough time for the public, but, you know, it was vented particularly against government TDs at the time. Uh, but, but it undermines the essence of democracy, that people can go to their politician, can go to their local council representative, to their TD, uh, and, and can interact with them. The day that we will actually end up with TDs having to go around with security details just to go about their daily lives will mean that democracy is under real pressure and under threat. So I just think all politicians, because politicians whip it up too, um, at, at times, we just have to be all conscious that it's sacred and we would want to diminish the threats to individuals and particularly when we're trying to attract younger people and more women into politics as well. Yeah, it's not I'm, a good look. Um, I was going to bring up that point, Mary Sherlock. I by no means want to condone what happened last night, but do politicians themselves need to take some responsibility for the discourse that we see um, in Leinster House? particularly, I suppose, the opposition towards members of government and decisions that they have made? Well, I think the first thing to say is, like, what happened last night was an absolute despicable act, and we know that there's a lot of people under pressure out there and under enormous strain, but there can be no excuses for what happened last night. To answer your question in terms of, you know, politicians whipping it up, like, as in, there's a big difference from, you know... 
a physical assault, like throwing mm. something at somebody as opposed to, you know, saying something or shouting at something and, and, at, at somebody. And, 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 and I, my big concern out of all of this, and, you know, I'm only elected just three years, is, like, trying to attract more women into politics in particular. Like, is it, you know, there's a whole cohort of women, of people, young men and women and mm. of all ages out there who want to step up, who want to get more involved, but they're looking at acts like that and saying, do they want to put themselves in that way? And, 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 and I think there's a responsibility, you know, on, on the political system to say that this isn't acceptable. But I suppose as well, you know, um, we, 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 like, it's, it's shocking, I suppose, some of the things that are now said, particularly in social media, that go unchecked. And, and it's a very sad reflection of, of where some people's headspace is at. Yeah, and Marion, I know there's a fear in Ireland among politicians, and I suppose a lot of members of the public who condone last night's attack, that this is the thin edge of the wedge. And if you look at the United yeah. States, there have mm -hmm. been threats and harassment of politicians, but I was reading today there has been a real increase in acts of physical violence, yeah. political violence, towards yeah. politicians in the US. You know, it's really interesting, just picking up on what you were saying there, uh, just a, a couple of statistics there. In the States in the last year alone, there have been 9,625 death threats against politicians in the States. That has gone up tenfold since 2016. Now, I am not saying it's directly connected to Donald Trump's election in 2016, but certainly the rhetoric was coarsened. I was at several Donald Trump rallies going back to the early days when he was a primary candidate, where he said he'd like to punch people in the face, where he said, encouraged his supporters to beat people up, said he'd pay their legal bills. You know, there is, it doesn't, now, obviously there are guns in America. You know, there, there are 400 million guns. It's a different kind of threat. But as an example, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, who was beaten, this 82-year-old man, had his skull fractured in a hammer attack. Uh, we know that the, the, the attacker went to her house saying, where's Nancy? January 6th, the anniversary of which is tomorrow, another example of, of really that people said they wanted to get Nancy Pelosi and kill her. They wanted to hang Mike Pence. And America is in a really ugly place at the moment, a yeah, very broken really place. Yeah, one really interesting thing yeah. I was reading too is that these sort of vicious political disagreements that mm. we're seeing in the United States, that actually they're seeping over into other aspects of everyday yeah. life, be that health workers, school yeah. principals, school election boards. workers. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and, and we're, we're, look, we're already seeing that here, and I think that's the important message to get across. It's not just about political representatives. Like, you know, I, I know some from talking to officials in Dublin City Council, that some officials there are, like, some of the abuse that has been levelled at them and the threats that have been made against them is absolutely appalling. So, so it's not yeah. just about the political system, it's about no, but people and, and health workers yeah. as well. And we know in A&E's, mm. uh, like, is in the, the level of abuse that, 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 that people can encounter. So, there, the, you know, mm. there, there's a real issue now in terms of, like, is in how society is actually treating, how people are yeah. treating yeah. each other yeah. here. And, and as you say, frontline people who should be thanked rather than attacked or intimidated. I think in America there is a slight difference. School boards down in America. School board meetings are where a lot of actual physical violence happens and threats and it's because of the cultural ideology and the big difference that you have people who really don't want children
haven't to be taught anything about American history, about racism, and then you have parents who do, and they really are coming to blows. And I think as well, uh, just even yeah. Brad Raffensperger, the, the Georgia Secretary of State, he had to go into hiding after he refused to throw Georgia for Trump. He got so many death threats. Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, I was up in Wyoming. People told me they wanted to kill her. Yeah. They wanted to put her head in the wall. You know, I mean, it's 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 a, something that, that becomes, it, it goes from a trickle to what it is in America now is a flood. Yeah, and, and that's that why disturbing to see something like that here. Because, happen here. Yeah. And Billy Keller, I'm, I'm wondering, do politicians sort of fear that <clears throat> if there is a frequency of these attacks that it will become more normalised and that people will see it almost as part and parcel of the job. Yes, I mean, that is the concern. I mean, and with references made, a lot of politicians don't report it because they don't want, first of all, to put themselves in the eye of the storm of this particular issue, um, you know, because people say, well, they deserve it in the first place type of thing, these throwaway remarks. Uh, previously, we had had colleagues that had to take their children out of certain schools uh, because of threats and just intimidation uh, that was in schools that was causing huge difficulties as I said, during that particular period. But, like, the, the, it's so coarse now, public discourse. In mm -hmm. social media, it is, uh, it's quite harsh and intimidating. And I just think that we, you know, will regret the day if we do allow it to go unchecked. So what do we do about it? Well, you know, at some stage, we're going to have to start calling people to be responsible for their actions, um, you know, and, and, that, and that's something that will have to be done at some stage. Uh, I don't like it because, I mean, you start are then crossing that fine line between freedom of expression and freedom uh, to say, uh, and, but at the same time, you have to protect. And it's not just politicians. Uh, we always have cases of social welfare officers being intimidated and threatened, housing officers regularly, uh, planning consultants. It is across the board. We've just got coarse. And I think social media has given a lot of people that sort of confidence to be coarser, uh, both in social media, but then when they interact directly with people. And politicians seem to be fair game, which is very unfortunate because at the end of the day, I think it will diminish access. We've already seen an, an increase in security details for the cabinet, but that will percolate right down through the political system and that's not good for anybody. All right, I want to move on to uh, another topic now and something that we discussed in detail on the programme here last night and that's the crisis <coughs> in our hospitals. It's showing no signs of slowing down. Today the HSE had a media briefing and said there was an entire system response to the crisis. We accept, uh, which is, it's, it's not good enough, it's not what we want, it's not what the staff try every day to make sure doesn't happen. and. Um, what we ask the patients to do is to accept often our apologies, and that's you know, and we seek to make the patients as comfortable as possible. Okay. Now the key issue obviously is, it, it is sickest patients first, so we are trying to get to the, the sickest patients, and other patients will will, will wait longer. Uh, Louise, there was a HSE briefing today. You were in attendance. I mean, we spoke here last night about the national emergency that was declared in 2006 when there was 495 people on trolleys. Did you get that sense today that this is seen as a national emergency again? I think I think they are recognising that it is a crisis. I don't know if I go as far as saying it's an emergency. I think they are recognising that it's a crisis. But even you know when you mentioned that that number four hundred ninety-five, you know we had nine hundred and thirty-one earlier this week, and I said to Stephen Mulvaney, the CEO of the HSC, can you say that we won't have a thousand people on trolleys by the end of the week or the end, end of the next couple of weeks because we keep hearing it's going to get worse before it gets better? And he said it's not probable, but it's possible. So it's going to get worse. And I think there is this real concern now. And the main concern is we don't know when the flu wave is going to peak and they just can't predict that. And they said that the cases over the next couple of weeks are going to be steady and they're going to keep increasing. And when the flu wave ends, we just don't know.
All right, uh, the situation in the hospitals around the country, it's galvanising people onto the streets, we're hearing. Earlier, I spoke to Mike Daly, who's organising one in Limerick, and I asked him how people there are feeling about the current crisis. Uh, well, that's easy to answer. Everybody in Limerick is enraged. Uh, we were, for quite a long time now, we've all put up with waiting hours of 10, 15 and 20 hours. I'm not going to sit back anymore and tolerate the way things are going. What do you put the current crisis and the crisis, I suppose, that you've seen in the past at Limerick Hospital, what do you put that down to? Oh, sure, that goes down to the closure of the A&Es in um, Nina, Ennis and in our own town, uh, St John's Hospital. Uh, the closure of those A&Es has just had a massive impact on UL and it's taken a few years to, for it to culminate to, to the disaster it is today. Uh, Mike Daly, they're organising a protest in Limerick, encouraging people to come out in the streets at the end of the month and saying, look, this isn't just about today's crisis. It's not just the recent trolley numbers. Um, there's been issues around UL and bed capacity for a long time. And I know you've had personal experience of that, Marie Sherlock. This isn't a January crisis, is it? No, and look, I think the first thing to say is like the government and the HSE sound like a broken record. Every single year we're hearing these pious promises about to fix it and every year we're seeing failure. And like, it, you know, yeah, you know, it's not just about December and January. My own father like isn't spent 64 hours in a chair in A&E, you know, September 12 months ago. So let's not kid ourselves that this is a surprise or a once-off. This is happening right throughout the year and Limerick particularly is in the eye of the storm here like you know ultimately there is as, as I see it, in terms of what's been said over the last few days there's been a fundamental dishonesty in terms of what's been coming out particularly from government and from the Taoiseach and Minister Donnelly talking about bringing in consultants for an extra few hours as if that's going to fix it or bringing in private diagnostic capacity they shouldn't be talking about that now it should be happening you know this like we this is entirely predictable and yet Every year, it comes about as a surprise. And, you know, ultimately... But well, we, we did ha have a winter plan, didn't we? Well, this is the whole point of the winter plan, you know? And yet, we're treating it like a surprise. So, you know, yes, OK, we, the, the flu is, is, is greater than expected. The RSV wasn't an entirely forecast. But we have a problem in our A&Es year in, year out. And ultimately, it boils down to the fact that we don't have enough beds. We don't have enough care in the community. Mm. We have a, a proposal from the National Ambulance Service to dramatically improve and expand their service to ensure that less people are going to hospital. And, and that's been sitting in the Department of Health for the past eight months. It, so really, what is happening in health here? There's been an abject failure. Do you accept that, Billy change. Keller, an abject failure? I mean, you were in government in the early noughties when we had an issue with trolleys and bed capacity in this country. It's now 22 years later and we are still talking about capacity yes. and trolleys. In fact, we're talking about it more today than ever because of the record-breaking numbers again. How have we gotten to this point? Well, when you nearly have a 1,000 people waiting on trolleys in emergency departments across the country, uh, it certainly is, 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 is a disaster and there's no point in saying otherwise. You know, you can put all the, all, describe all the words you like, but uh, either way, it is risking patients' lives, it is jeopardising outcomes and it is putting the workers under fierce pressure. And I sat on the Shlanta Care Committee that actually published a report that is now part of government policy in terms of reforming healthcare. Uh, the bottom line here, until such times we enhance capacity, and that's both in terms of beds, consultants... But why hasn't 
bed well, capacity being well, enhanced? Bed capacity I mean, we has increased to a certain extent, but we have to increase uh, enough. No, no, I've been no, 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 We've had a thousand no. beds in the last three years, yeah, but and I, I think a thousand and yes, the eleven but, but, before that. Yes, but a thousand, a, a thousand additional beds. But we need an awful lot more than a thousand additional beds. I mean, the population is aging. The population is increasing. But we, 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 a, we know we all of this. population increase of over a quarter of a million people in this country over the last six years, and an increase in hospital beds has been just over 100 beds per year. Yes. When you look ahead to the next 10 years, there's going to be an increase in 300,000 people over the age of 65. And how are we planning to cope, to cope with well, that? So that like we don't that's have the resources the in the community. That's why the report was published. And, 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 and it was an all-party all committee report uh, that was meant to be implemented. It's part of government policy. It was reinforced with the new government. Uh, it and has that not happened? Well, it's not happening, and it's not certainly not happening at the pace it was uh, anticipated. And so that's what certainly, is, I, I, there's, three, there's three big issues. There's three insight. big issues. What the, is the biggest obstacle the, here at this point? The, the three biggest think? issues are that we just don't have enough beds in the hospital system, particularly in the acute hospital setting. But we, don't we have know that. But why? Doctors. Why do we not at this well, point? Because we've identified the bed I'll, capacity I'll, I'll, issue I'll, I'll give for you a simple years. example. I mean, like to build a bed, to build a hospital costs an awful lot of money. Um, you know, these things have to be done. Uh, they have to be planned. Not only then when you commission beds. You also have to increase the staff. We don't have enough consultants. We don't have enough uh, doctors. We don't have enough nurses. And our community care system is completely undermined. We don't just have enough in community care and GP services, which are the front line. And this is the most annoying thing of all of this. But, we, if, but yes, with all due respect, you're speaking like somebody who's been was in opposition when you were actually in government. Well, no, I was actually in opposition when I, when I, we, we published this report. I mean, I was I was an, op, an opposition deputy sitting. We commissioned this report was commissioned. It was Roisin Shortall actually mm. was the person that advocated for this particular committee to be established. Okay. It was established. We worked very long and hard at it. We got all party agreement. What we need now is for the government to actually commit the funding, both in terms of short-term funding and the capital projects that are required to build the hospitals. We need more beds. But the, the bitter irony is that like, our public finances are the envy of Europe. Mm. Like, when you look at what was published with regards to the, uh, the record surpluses that this state has generated over the last number of yeah, years... Money doesn't seem to be the issue. And, and we still haven't managed right. to put we, that capacity we, we, in place. But we, we even failed in our, in, in our ability to plan to uh, who's educate enough failure? doctors, nurses and all existing staff. But who's responsible right for that failure? Well, it's a failure of government policy, it's a failure of public policy, of course it is. You have a Fianna Fáil right. Fianna Fáil Health Minister at the moment. Well, look, I mean, these things didn't just happen overnight. They've been happening for a prolonged period of time. I mean, if you look back, I mean, we've been suffering from the 80s in terms of cutbacks. Uh, to the to the architecture of the health services in this country, we close a huge number of beds. When yes, but that's, we've had fit of oil and finnegill in government since then. Well, we've had a lot. Of, we've had most parties in government actually since. We also had Labour in government and as well. There was more All right. beds per capita yes. okay. in 2016 than there is in 2021. This is the, point. This like, is the, this point. Is the thing, it, right? It, okay. The like, difficulty you've just is, squandered years. Marie, of the difficulty in this is we've over politicised health to the point where it is now uh, uh, paralysis is the problem. What we need yeah, is is for no no. What we need is for we need is for the report to be committed and, and okay. implemented. We don't need more and reports. And Labour were also in government as well. Okay. We can't all Yeah, and there was more it. beds per capita in 2016 All right, well, yeah. during the darkest years at this stage well, look, than, than, than the years of plenty in the point, years you know, after that. The report okay. is there. It should be implemented. We're going to take a break. Uh, do stay with us. My panel are staying with me. And after the break, we're looking at some of the explosive excerpts from Prince Harry's memoirs. Do stay with us.
You're very welcome back. Prince Harry's long-anticipated memoir comes out next week and some excerpts to publish today show he is holding nothing back. He brings up cocaine use and alleged assault on him by his brother William and how many people he says he killed whilst in Afghanistan. He's also done a series of TV interviews. Here is some of what he had to say. People will say, you have railed against invasions of your privacy all your life. But they, the accusation will be, here are you invading the privacy of your most nearest and dearest without permission. That'll be the accusation. That'll be the accusation from the people. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns that don't understand or don't want to believe that my family have been briefing the press. If you're invited to the coronation, will you come? There's a lot that can happen between now and then. But, you know, the door is always open. The, the ball is in their court. There's a lot to be discussed, and I really hope that they are willing to sit down and talk about it. And the rest of that interview will be broadcast in full here on Virgin Media One this Sunday at... 9pm. Louise, a lot of memoirs are an absolute damp squib and I think we probably would have expected that from Harry given the fact that he's just done a six-part documentary with Netflix about his life. But this is really quite explosive. I was shocked by the personal detail in this book. And I think also because the royal family are usually such a closed book, when you start hearing things about this, you are you are really shocked. And um, so just really, give us an idea of what we've learnt yeah, so far. Some really explosive things coming out today. Um, I think the most explosive perhaps is this reported fight with Prince William. Um, and this is alleged to be about um Harry's marriage to Meghan Markle. And um, that they he has accused him now of physically assaulting him. He accused him of grabbing him by the collar, of ripping his neck place and of knocking him to the floor. He said that he fell on the dog bowl. The dog bowl splintered. He was left with bruises all over his back. William told him not to tell Megan. So that's probably the most dramatic one. He's called William his beloved brother and his arch nemesis, which says a lot, I think. Um, you have the... He sp spoke about his time in Afghanistan. He said he's killed 25 people when he was over there. He spoke about trying cocaine when he was 17. Then he kind of really got into the family stuff as well. Um, he spoke about the fact that Prince William and himself asked 
Prince Charles, now King Charles, not to marry Camilla um, and that didn't want their father to remarry. So it's really, really opened some sores, I think, for the family. And I, he's talking about reconciliation. You'd wonder, you'd wonder what that bridge looks like now. I can't imagine it looks great, to be honest, Marion. I mean, he's done that interview which we saw there with Tom Bradbury in, on ATN. He's also done an, another interview in America, 60 Minutes on CBS, which is really, mm -hmm. I suppose, the go-to interview, yeah. isn't it, in the United Cooper. States? Are they going to be gobbling this up over there? Does anyone else feel that this is just ridiculous? I mean, I'm sorry, he's a soldier and he says... My brother tore my necklace. I mean, what, what's going on there? He pushed me into a dog bowl. You know, I mean, I, I wish they'd all just go away, quite frankly, because I find them all a bit ridiculous. I think that, that the, the um, Kate and William are about as interesting as a pair of garden gnomes. I think that William, uh, or that Harry and Meghan need to just go away quietly for a while. I don't find them a particularly interesting family on any level. And I think that this nonsense... And yet so many people... Do I mean the story was America is riveted? Let me tell you, in the states now they live up in Montecito, next door to Oprah and Ellen and all those people, um, but they are kind of the new Kardashians because they want to know what goes on in that weird family in England. Yeah, but they are and, sort of like yeah. the new Kardashians yeah. because what we heard in this book. It was sort of like something out of reality TV, wasn't it? It's not something you'd expect really... to hear from members of the royal family. Honestly, and, and you know, I don't know, William, I mean, they were both, what, in their 30s when this fight allegedly happened? I mean, for God's sake, you know, this is... Do you think he's just bitter, full of resentment? Honestly, you just don't care. I couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not going Get to be glued to the box this Get Sunday night, Harry. Yeah, I'd like say. I will. I do not think, though, like, because you always look at the royal family and you're like, oh, they're so proper and they're this and they're that. And then they're when mad. it comes down to it, look they at have the normal look at fights. Andrew. They're all one's madder But they have the, the normal other. fights. You know, I'm not saying myself oh, and my not. sibling throw each other to the floor, but, like, they have the normal Luckily, kind of family. Luckily, my family have to pay off 12 million to a 17-year-old. We might fall out with our siblings, but we don't write a book about it and go on national television. Not that anybody would care. But, I mean, you don't go out and tell everybody you know about it, do you? You know, What about keeping things behind closed doors? Washing your dirty linen, but I suppose in this case, washing your dirty silk, probably more than likely. Royal family, yeah. I'm not a royal watcher myself, but it's it's just unseemly, isn't it? It's unseemly, being truthful. Do you think they should respond the royal family to this because they've said that they are not going to respond to the allegations yeah. that he makes in this book. And, you know, it should be pointed out, this is just one person's uh, account of the facts. It's his interpretation. Do you think they are right to do that? Well, I mean, the royal family not, never respond. Bear in mind, we look at the royal family just through the eyes of the individuals. It is a monopoly. It is a, con a consortium. It's a big corporation, let's be honest, more than just the family themselves. I can remember when Princess Di died and... Um, there was a lot of hassle over it at the time because the flag wasn't flying at half-mast, they wouldn't come back from Balmoral or something. You know, they made no apologies. The, the royal family or the palace doesn't, make doesn't do apologies or doesn't discuss things publicly. So they will just ride the storm out, I'm quite sure. Mm. Um, you know, that's what they'll do. So one of the difficulties here, I think, um, Marie, is that he, as Tom Bradbury pointed out there, he has railed against this invasion of his privacy and his you know, his yeah. wife's private life being exposed in the press, and yet he's just done that to his own family. I just so where's that, your sympathy? The whole thing is just so sad. You want to cry for him because, like, you know, uh, the psychoanalyst must be having a field day watching an interview like this and going, all the trauma he's been through and whatever his, 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 his boyhood and, and adulthood. Yeah, like, ultimately, there is that irony there that, like, is in they've railed against this intrusion and yet... 
you know, I suppose to make a living for themselves in the States. Yeah. They've realized that, you know, bear, you know, yeah. telling all is the way to do it. Um, I just, just rather think it's so sad. Exactly. Yeah. You they know, don't seem that, the right I will say very quickly, though, that I do think that what Harry said, I do have some sympathy for, he said, they leak. Like, what the royals do is yeah. they leak. And I think he's feeling, nobody's hearing our side. And by God, they're going to hear well, it now. <laughs> so yeah. We have now heard you, Harry, loud and But the royals, the royals is more than just a family. It is a, it is a big oh, organisation. It's an institution. All right, well, speaking of institutions, let's go over to the United States, a country that is well used to political chaos. What is happening right now, however, is a once-in-a-century event. For the first time in 100 years, a Speaker for the House of Representatives has not been sworn in right away. Kevin McCarthy is being held back by a hardline group from his own party, determined to see him not land the top job. Well, Marion, I mean, I think it was the ninth, if not the tenth, vote um, that he has yes. failed yeah. to succeed in in the last half an hour. It's exceptional and it's quite shambolic, isn't it? You know, I think this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a farce, but it's also deeply worrying because this critical um, organ of government and branch of government is offline. There's nothing happening. It should be up and running. Now, admittedly, if it were up and running, the first thing they'd be doing would be saying, Hunter Biden, Anthony Fauci, Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, that they would be impeaching and interrogating and all that crazy stuff. But first of all, who would want the job in the GOP? Look at the record. They've ended up in jail. They've ended up being run out of town. The Republican speakers do not do well. They don't come out of it well. Ever. But he uh, does want the job um, and he, he desperately can't wants get the job. It. And it's his own and people that are holding him back. So, what is their issue with him? Their issue is you know, Kevin McCarthy is not the brightest guy in the Congress by a very long shot. And, uh, we don't hold is, that against all politicians, we, no, we, do we? But you know, if you want to be speaker, if you want to be head of a, of a body of 435 very fractious people, you better like Nancy Pelosi, you better know how to strategize, you better know the issues, you better have priorities. He has no ideology that... Uh, I, he's a nice guy to speak to. Kevin McCarthy wants everyone to love him. People like him, but they don't respect him because he will say one thing to you, he'll say another thing to you, he'll say whatever it takes. And these people, the, the far right, the Matt Gaetzes, the Lauren Bobarts, they know they can run roughshod over him. He has now given them every concession. Mm. Don't ever put him in charge of a hostage negotiation. <laughs> he gave them everything and asked for nothing back. He didn't even say, if I give you this, the motion to vacate, where one person can now say, you know what, we want you out, and, and they can trigger that vote. It used to be 50 a week ago. And he, he still hasn't secured that, And he still didn't get a vote back in but return. But is there any yeah. other candidate that the Republican Party can unite under? You know, they, they will have to, is the short answer. I think Steve Scalise, who's the number two, he's, he's would be his deputy, had McCarthy. And the hubris around McCarthy and the presumption, and he kept saying, oh, Nancy Pelosi quit because she couldn't bear to hand me the gavel, like this presumptuousness. Well, we've that, just heard yeah. he's just lost the 10th the vote tenth. in the last couple of you minutes. You know, at a certain point, as Einstein said, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. It, it's, it really is the definition. But the, the destruction in the Republican Party and these people, they are just disruptors in that they just want to crash the whole system. They have no alternative. What they want to do is to make life hell for Joe Biden, which, you know, opposition will do that. But I'm not seeing Matt Gates or, or any of them coming up with an alternative other than mayhem. So is this just a party in turmoil? Yeah. Then? 
Yeah. And, you know, this didn't start with Donald Trump. This goes back to 2010, to the Tea Party, the Freedom Caucus, to the Mark Meadows. Jim Jordan, God help us, could become Speaker. Um, but I think it will be Steve Scalise because he's culturally far more conservative than Kevin McCarthy. Um, not a particularly yeah. pleasant guy. And if it's not him, then... Then who? I mean, there's talk about Donald Trump, for God's sake. Well, this speaking is the level of, of Donald Trump, I think he did actually interject, which I think is one of the most responsible things he did. And I understand that he did ask the Republican Party to unite under one candidate, and clearly they haven't listened to him. So is it a further rebuke of Donald Trump? Again, do you think, Billy? Well, that would be good news if it was. Um, I, I wouldn't like to see Donald Trump the, pres the president or the presidential candidate, even for the Republican Party. Uh, but I just think that the Republican Party isn't deep a malaise in, in America. It just doesn't stand for any one thing. It's gone very right-wing. It's chasing itself into this continual spiral of right-wing politics. It's nasty and it's divisive, and now it's turning on itself to mm. a certain extent. Um, I think there's also bigger plays here. I think that the, the, the right uh, in, like, the, the remnants of the Tea Party, uh, as Marion said, they want to assert themselves again uh, and flex their muscles and they see this as, a, as an opportunity. But look, uh, Kevin McCarthy is a weak candidate and, and even if he gets it, he'll be a very weak uh, speaker because of the fact he'll only have a majority of three or four. So um, it doesn't look good from their perspective. But being honest... It could honest, frustrate all further decision-making within yeah. the House of Representatives. Yes, yeah. yes, the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, if, if, the, if they can control their own, well, then it will make for very unpleasant politics for the foreseeable future, which damages all because a weak Capitol Hill uh, weak Congress is not good for politics internationally as well and for commerce internationally. All right, uh, we just want to move on to one final story today and that was Pope Benedict who was laid to rest in a ceremony at the Vatican. The funeral for the former pontiff who shocked the world when he stood down in 2013 was attended by around 50,000 people. An Irish woman from Donegal, Mary Maguire, read one of the liturgies. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us a new birth as his sons. Well, earlier I spoke to journalist Paddy Agnew in Rome and I began by asking him whether the attitude to the funeral today was deliberately moderate and sombre. Yeah, uh, in short, Kira, it was. Uh, good evening to you and to, to all our viewers. No, it was uh, very much deliberate because the last thing that the Vatican wanted was that uh, this be in any way a, a, a showpiece occasion, a rallying point for uh, those uh, Catholics who would see in Benedict uh, and in Benedict's uh, staunchly traditional uh, defense of, of, of the Catholic faith, uh, somebody to support and uh, would compare it unfavorably with uh, the current Pope Francis. So it was, from your reading of the situation, it was notably quite cold today then? Well, it was quite cold in the sense that, um, you know, if you compare it to the, uh, uh, the funeral of John Paul II in 2005, there is no comparison in terms of numbers. Like, uh, there were maybe 30,000, 35,000, 40,000 people at most in the square today. There were 300,000 people uh, in the square for uh, John Paul II's uh, funeral, and there were about 2 million people in the area uh, adjoining the Vatican on that occasion. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the point, point is, there are two uh, points here. One is uh, Benedict himself had asked for a, a relatively simple funeral, 
in as much as any papal funeral can ever be called simple. Uh, and he, uh, that clearly showed the Vatican because um, they had to, they had to, the, the Vatican mandarins, the Vatican uh, diplomacy had to steer a very uh, delicate balancing, balancing act between uh, paying all the respect and showing all the, uh, all the respect that you would expect them to show to uh, a man who had been a pope, but at the same time uh, differentiating between him uh, and other popes as somebody who uh, did not die uh, on the job, who uh, resigned. He was the first pope in, modern, in the modern era to resign, as we all know. And the Vatican, therefore, uh, could not offer him exactly uh, word for word, letter for letter, comma for comma, the same, uh, the same funeral rites. Uh, you mentioned there that he is, of course, a pope that resigns. Um, has a precedent now been set, do you think, for other popes, namely Pope Francis himself? Because there has been much speculation about his future and his health. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's the question, the 60 million, $64 million question that everybody's asking. Um, uh, my answer to you is this, that uh, a lot of people, when today's one of those days when people are sitting around saying, what is the legacy of uh, Pope Benedict? And a lot of people feel that his, uh, nothing so befitted him, nothing was so important in his pontificate as his final act, his resignation, because in so doing, he broke a mold and he has made it possible for future popes, he's made it easier for future popes to resign. Uh, but then, uh, you know, speaking to uh, the Emeritus Archbishop of Dublin, Jeremy Martin today, he pointed out that uh, it's also, that's a two-edged sword because it could be that in the future, uh, given that the resignation uh, is no longer taboo, when a pope gets to a certain age and he's been in the job for quite a while and he's beginning to look a bit old, people will start saying to him, well, why haven't you resigned already? All right, we're going to leave it there. Paddy Agnew, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you. Uh, many thanks to my panel who have joined me this evening. We're going to take a quick break. And after that, we will be looking at New Year's resolutions and ask if they are something we really need to be doing. of year again. Christmas has long passed and we're all heading back to work and to school. And for many, it will be a time to make some promises to ourselves, be it healthy eating or joining a gym or, if you're me, both. But is that the right approach? And is it the time of year to do it? I'm joined by psychotherapist and author Richard Hogan. So there you go. I admit I've made New Year's <laughs> resolutions. All of the cliches have you? I, um, yeah, I suppose I think about different things to do over the course of the year. I think I'm more along the lines of not so much resolutions, but maybe bringing new things into my life that I can embed into my life that might bring about happiness into my life and removing some things that might have been, mightn't have worked for me over the last year. So do you agree with this idea of setting these goals for yourself in January? I, I, I see, I think with resolutions, in my experience working clinically, I meet about the third week of January, people who come in and they very, feel very hopeless. And so a lot of the times we, we launch out in these big declarations of change in our lives. And by the third week, we're kind of going, we're falling back into old habits. And so what I'd say to people always, Kira, is that we have to think about how we think, first of all. 
We, you know, we're very intentional about our physical habits, but we're not so intentional about our thinking habits. And if we have a very negative paradigm running underneath how we, how we think about ourselves, the chances of us bringing anything to life will diminish greatly. So we have to think about how we think, first of all, and thinking more positively takes intentionality. And so before we launch out in big declarations, we should start thinking, you know, how do I think about things? Am I positive or am I a negative thinker? And how could I be more positive? Because this is when really... When you say think about things, you talk yeah. about how you think about yourself. Yes, the relationship you have with yourself. It's the most important relationship you have. Because if that's off, and I meet people in my clinic all the time, you know, and I, intern I, I externalize that internalized voice, I interview that voice, and I hear them talking, you know, I hear that voice talking, and it's a tyrant. It's despotic, and it's saying things like, you're ugly, you're not that good, you're lazy, you'll never amount to anything, you're going to get found out, you're not that, you know, nobody likes you. And I'd say, God, would you say that? That to me, and they'd say, no, I'd never say that to you. Or I'd say, would you say to someone that you like, no. But and that voice, I'd imagine, gets louder if you fail with your New Year's resolutions. It, it, absolutely. The articulation of that voice becomes absolute in a person's voice. Again, another failure, another part of that story that you mound, you, you know, add up on top, on top of your story about who you are. And so that's why I think these declarations of like what I'll do this year are important. We first of all think, how am I thinking? Because if that's not right, you'll never bring anything into play. OK, so let's start then with let's getting our head right yeah, before we do exactly. any sort of specific tasks <clears throat> like a lot of us will have um, resolved to do this year. How do you go about changing your mindset? Yeah, well, this, first of all, we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day and 90% of those are what we thought yesterday. So we generally think in the same patterns that we've thought all the time. And we think we're thinking, but we're just running old neural circuit loops. We're just running the same old thoughts. And so when we had a negative... 60 to 70,000 thoughts. No wonder we're all exhausted <laughs> well, by the end not, of the day. But the thing here, here's the thing. It's like, you know, it's like if you look at a, a, a video on Instagram, you look at scrolling, and you see puppies, and you look at that a few times, all you're going to get from Instagram is puppies. And so if you think negative thoughts, all you're going to start getting from your brain is filtering out positivity. And so what you have to do is start to reorient your brain, start to think, I am valuable, and look for three examples of that during the day. I am worthy. I am enough. I don't, for, and I would say this to a lot of women in my clinic, I don't have to say yes to everything to be valuable. You know, I don't have to be a pleaser to everybody, because a people pleaser doesn't please anybody, really, and least of all themselves, and they become resentful of themselves. And that causes a, a massive nadir, a, a low, you know, in your happiness arc. And so if you start to say these things to yourself and look around for examples of that, like, I am valuable, I am enough, I, I don't have to say yes to, you know, to please people and to be valuable. All of a sudden, you start to filter out the negative thoughts and start to bring in the positive thoughts into your view. And that shift in locus of your brain can massively change your levels of happiness. When you say you need to say it to yourself, just to be really practical yeah, here, are exactly. you saying get up in the morning... You know, First Phil you... Collins, stand in the mirror, look at yourself and say, you're great? <laughs> well, yeah, I think there should be a bit of that too, but I'd have a little thing in, uh, written out to myself. So three affirmations, I'm valuable. And I'd say, over the course of the day, have that in your head and look for examples when you encounter people feeling that you're valuable. And so you jot it down, you write it when you come home, you journal it and say, I was valuable today when this happened, I was valuable today when that happened, I felt valuable when this happened. And so what you're doing is a very practical thing there, Kira. You're actually physically reorienting your brain. You're, you're, you're making your brain, cha you're changing it from a negative orientation to a positive one. You do that enough, and I, I, I did this last year on Instagram, and 93% of people who follow this challenge, this happiness challenge, said their, their happiness cha dramatically changed. Uh, you talk about happiness, but I remember reading something before that said, don't strive for happiness all of the time. Happiness yeah. is quite a difficult thing to achieve. If you're content with your lot, that should be good enough. <laughs> happiness is 
fleeting. Happiness is something you get, you know, when something goes very well or you get good news. Yeah. It's not a state of mind that you can be in all the time. But you disagree with that. I do. I think I think it's a capo, to be honest. I think I think it's a very Irish thing to say, let's not say happiness, let's say contentment. Because actually we lack a little bit of courage to be happy. And we think, I think that this is the paradigm underneath that. If I'm happy, I can get whacked and I can fall down. So if I stay here in this little plateau of contentment, I can't be up here and happy and knocked down. Of course, happiness is transient. You know, you know, we all experience ups and downs. That's the slings and arrows of life. But being able to experience happiness more is a really important thing for us to, to really pursue and go after. OK, but what about some of the things that people do resolve to try and do um, in the new year, be it healthy eating yeah. or looking after your diet or getting more fresh air or trying to get a little bit of exercise, things that are very positive and very good yeah. for you. And people do want to stick to those goals. What can they do to try and achieve those? Always make them realistic. And you have to work in the interest of your future self to bring these things into, into play. And I would say, you know, when you bring in a, a dry January, let's say that's a big thing that goes on, dry January, I'd say it'd be much more beneficial for your health to think about lowering your income, your intake of alcohol over the course of the year than just one month. Because what generally happens is people go back in February and they kind of like, you know, almost making up for lost time. And so there's no real health change there. Bringing in healthy diet, healthy approach to alcohol, that would be very beneficial for someone's well-being and happiness. But again, having a sensible approach to it. All right, OK, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Richard Thank Hogan, thanks for joining us this evening. Well, that is it from us here on The Tonight Show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.